Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the Artistic Director of New York's Doc NYC Festival and a programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. On this episode, I talk to Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. Their new film is a biography of Norman Lear, the television pioneer and founder of People for the American Way. The film is called Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You and is coming out in theaters this summer. Heidi and Rachel have been collaborating for nearly 20 years. Their first feature documentary was The Boys of Baraka, about at-risk youth in Baltimore who go to a school in Kenya. Their next film, Jesus Camp, about the evangelical right, was nominated for an Academy Award. Their other notable films include Twelfth and Delaware, about America's abortion battles, and Detropia, about the city of Detroit just before its bankruptcy. Together, they run the company Loki Films, named after the Norse god of fire. They're based in New York, and I interviewed them at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach at the MFA Social Documentary Program. I started the conversation by asking Heidi if there was a specific documentary that drew her into wanting to make films. No, there was an experience that happened to me. I was living in Los Angeles um, trying to get a film career started in my 20s, and my neighbor came over and he said, I just found my mother in Vietnam. Uh, he was on a baby lift flights uh, after um, the fall of Ho Chi Minh City, and his mother had been a prostitute, and he was adopted by this Christian family, he and his brother, and they had had a horrible upbringing in the U.S., uh, homophobic parents, etc. And his brother had found his mother um, through a series of investigations. They had sent baby pictures, and I said, oh, my God, that would be a great documentary. He's like, yes, can we make one? And I said, I don't know how. <laughs> I literally... I, I had a video camera. I did some interviews with him. They were really bad. And I, I was like, I wanted to help him get it off the ground. I didn't know who and what. And uh, so I signed up for a night class at UCLA taught by Brom Roos, dearly departed filmmaker Brom Roos, mm -hmm. and changed my life. And I found what I wanted to do. I had made films in college, and I'd written plays, and I was sort of flailing around about, but I hadn't thought of documentary until... Joe Wandell came to my house, and then that as soon as I that after the first class, it was done. Whatever happened to that idea? Thankfully, it got made. Like twenty twenty did something. I had a small hand in it, um, but it didn't happen for a couple of years. And I, if I met him today, I could get it done with one phone call. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not that was then. So, Rachel, how about you? Was it, were there documentaries that you watched that made you want to do that? Uh, when I was about nine or ten my mom took me to a movie called streetwise and i didn't really understand what i was watching i knew it wasn't actors but it felt so real and they were kids of about my age and i was completely obsessed with it and i made her take me back to see it again and Obviously, I didn't launch into my career at nine years old, but it was something that kind of stuck with me um, in terms of just an experience. And then I went to school for journalism, and I thought I was going to be a journalist, and I decided that it was not for me with this. It, it felt too constricting. And by the time I was done with college, I had settled on making documentaries, basically. And... Um, it's still, to this day, Streetwise is just an exquisite piece of cinema. And um, it, I, I really give it 
credit for launching my career. Hmm. Now, uh, in episode five of our podcast, Liz Garbus talked about how her career really got a lift when she was working for Jonathan Stack. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, the two of you also met uh, working for Jonathan Stack's company. How did that happen? That's right. Um, You know what? We both, it's really funny. He made the farm with Liz and both of us had seen it separately. We didn't know each other. And from opposite ends of the country, Heidi was in Los Angeles, I was in New York. We both stalked Jonathan and got him to hire us. And because Jonathan, um, I don't know if he's crazy or if he's cheap or if, I don't know why he hired (laughs) us. He's a little of both. Um, I don't know why he hired us. Neither one of us really had done what he was hiring us for, but he did and he put us together and we did a two hour film on the Church of Scientology and we both had a blast and that's how we met each other. And that's how we both started making documentaries professionally. Which goes to the point of, I have to throw this in, I always talk about male mentorship being so important to to have more women directors in the world. Uh, Everyone focuses on women helping women. That's super important. We already do it. Male mentorship. Jonathan Stack hired very smart young women to make films. Uh, he would raise the money, we would make the films. We got an incredible amount of experience on his dime, and a lot of women went out to do excellent things and excellent work. So he's a real example, I think, of, of that. I think Alex Gibney also also does it. Hmm. Um, and it's really major. It can, it can really uh, start a career. Now, it's such a special thing to meet someone who's going to be your work partner. I mean, it's as, as special as meeting someone who's going to be your life partner. Uh, in fact, maybe it is. <laughs> it pretty much is. Except for the sex part. I got to throw that out there. <laughs> That's Does- right. We do. Even though we sleep in the bed, same bed sometimes, it's only because our budgets are too low. It's That's it, guys. Okay? So enough with that. I'm glad we cleared that yeah, up. Yeah, excellent. So what was that? Like, what was that initial attraction? Uh-huh. Uh, sense of humor. Yeah, I would say humor for sure. We both had a similar worldview in terms of um, taking our work very seriously, but never taking ourselves or the world too seriously to become smug and to lose um, really a sense of the irony and the absurdity. Um, in fact, Norman Lear likes, likes to talk about um, the foolishness of the human condition. I think that's something that we both have identified with. So the first film you guys set out to do together is Boys of Baraka, about uh, at-risk youth from Baltimore who go to Kenya uh, to to go to school uh, there. How did that project come about? Just the old-fashioned way. Heidi read about it in either Newsweek, Newsweek Newsweek magazine, and um, very diligently followed up every month to the woman that was running the program in Baltimore and uh, eventually wore her down, and she (laughs) gave us access, and we started making the film with no money, with no funding, and it took us a few years to do, and we paid for the film by working on other projects and just supporting the other one while we took turns going into the field other projects for other companies. We started Loki Films in 2001. We got one television project off the ground. We found an office space sharing with Mark Levin and Alex Gibney at the time over there on the west side. And um, we 
couldn't couldn't generate enough projects of our own to make a living. So as Rachel said, one of us would go off and do something for True Entertainment or for VH1 or whatever, while the other one focused on the boys of Brock. It was like kibbutz style. Um, it really was. And collectively, we were able to get to a strong enough point where ITVS came on board for finishing funds, more or less. Um, but I think for first time, your first feature-length doc, at least at that time, um, you got to prove yourself. And it was funny. We actually, I remember the conversation we had at the time where we were trying to get jobs and sell television shows because that's that was the model that we knew from who we'd work for which is you know you make your own films and you also do paid gigs for A&E or HBO or whatever and you do your project that of love um, however we couldn't it, it took so much time and so much effort for us to get into meetings, et cetera, to sell a television show. We realized, why don't we just put this effort into making a film and just work for somebody else? Mm -hmm. It was actually more efficient than starting a television production company. And so our partnership became solidified with the boys of Baraka because we committed to something. It was difficult. We finished it. We were proud of it. And it really launched our career as a documentary uh, directing team. I feel like an important ingredient for a lot of people's first films is naivete. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> did, did that come up? Too dumb to fail. <laughs> <laughs> right, too dumb to fail. It's so true. We had no idea it would take over four years to make the film when we started. It was just pure enthusiasm and love for these kids. And all it was all heart. And, you know, Rachel and I both agree that that film has the most heart of any film we've made. Hopefully it won't stay that way forever. <laughs> but it just is that way uh, for now. And maybe it is for everyone. Um, and we feel strongly about all of our subjects. But that was like this mission. There was like a mission component to it and an urgency. And I think you can maybe feel that through the lens. I mean, the editor, Mona Davis, once told me that she liked most working on the films of first-time filmmakers. And I thought, really? Like, I would think as an editor, you would want to work with someone who knows what they're doing mm -hmm. <laughs> and who, you know, shot the material correctly. Mm. But I think what she really meant is that uh, first-time filmmaker brings that kind of heart and dedication mm -hmm. that's hard to repeat. And, a, and openness. You know, you have nothing to compare anything to. And nothing to lose. And or nothing maybe, to lose. Or maybe she meant that uh, as the experienced editor, she could boss them around. <laughs> sure. <laughs> she could take over. Yeah. Poor dummies. Oh, editors. For their second film, Jesus Camp, released in 2006, Heidi and Rachel focused on an American evangelical group that trains children to be soldiers in the army of God. Here's the camp leader, Becky Fisher, in the film. I want to see young people who are as committed to the cause of Jesus Christ as the young people are to the cause of Islam. I want to see them as radically laying down their lives for the gospel as, as they are uh, over in, in Pakistan and in Israel and, and Palestine and all those different places, you know, because we have, excuse me, but we have the truth. Heidi explains how they met Becky Fisher. One of our characters in The Boys of Baraka, Devon Brown, was a child preacher. And we went about exploring. We thought we'd heard someone tell us there was a school for child preachers in New Orleans. I don't know if it was a dream or someone told us, but it didn't exist. So I actually stumbled across a website, Children on Fire, run by Becky Fisher. And I remember showing right to Rachel and going, oh, my God. 
oh my God, what is this? What is this? So we sent away for brochures and pamphlets and um, to our personal addresses and to look at her, her videos or whatever. And as soon as we saw them, it was like, this is our next film. I don't know what this is, but it's amazing. She was training up children to uh, be soldiers of the Lord. And with, there was a political angle to it that we found figured out very soon after that this was these were the children of the Christian right. This like nameless, faceless voting block that everybody was talking about. Well, this was this was the, this was a Christian right. Um, and we um, you know called we were so nervous. I called Becky up because Rachel and I were like, I wonder if she'll take a meeting with us and I wonder if we can do this and called her up and I said, Hi, um this is Heidi Ewing from Loki Films and um, is this Becky Fisher and we may have we make a documentaries and uh, really nervous and she goes, I've been waiting for you to call because she'd been prophesized once, like 10 years earlier, that one day she'd be on the big screen. Wow. <laughs> so access was really easy on that one. <laughs> and uh, basically, after the Boys of Baraka opened at South by Southwest, ran into Molly Thompson in the airport. And she was like, what are you guys working on? And we said, we've got something. And so it went right into Jesus Camp with A&E Indy and, and Molly Thompson. So we were ready with something. So instead and, of going to New Orleans, you went to North Dakota. Oh, Lord, and Missouri. We spent most right. of our time in Missouri. Never wanted to go back, no offense. And um, yeah, we ended up making that film pretty quickly because we thought it was like, going to be dated because we were we thought we were at the apex of the power of the Christian right. And Christian right had the ear of George Bush and we raced to finish it because we thought, well, this won't last. That was naive too because hmm. the Christian right ended up becoming the Tea Party, becoming a very powerful entity. But you don't know that when you're making a film. So um, what I tell filmmakers that ask when they're, they finish their first movie, we say, have something ready. Have another film ready. Like, don't white, you've been white knuckling this one, it's your entire life, but if it's good, people are going to offer you opportunities. And in this case, we were ready. We had something that we were working on, and we were able to sell it quickly. And, and that really, really made, was made a big difference for us. So, oh, I just want to add that she had been advertising that she could help people, kids, raise people from the dead. <laughs> and honestly, if that is what we had found, I think the film would have done just fine as well. We would have won the Oscar instead of lost it to Al Gore if we had shot someone being raised from the dead. You were obsessed with that. Because you were uh, like, what if she can? What if she can? can? What if she could do that? That would have been New Orleans. What if she could have raised Al Gore from the dead? <laughs> that would have changed the election. Everything. No, but that would have brought us to New Orleans. We'd have had our voodoo movie if she could have raised someone from the dead. Would anyway, have been it didn't happen. We got something else, though. So what's it like to walk into a scenario like that? Uh, Becky Fisher and th this particular strain of evangelical Christians are ideologically on a different track than, than you are. Mm -hmm. You know, How do you navigate that? Well, the first thing that you do is find what you have in common. There are things you have in common, uh, maybe not politically or there's obviously a host of things that are different from almost everyone that you meet, but there are things that you have in common. Everybody, everybody does. So that helps. You know, you have to focus on that stuff. But also it's good to remind yourself and not be, you know, in a way arrogant. They, these are people that were just living their life. They're minding their own business. You called them and asked if you could come into their house and film them. And I think that you have to be incredibly respectful and thankful for that. They don't owe you anything. So just it, it's reminding yourself, uh, I'm, the straight, I'm the outsider here. 
I'm 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 I am entering their bubble, so you have to kind of you're a guest. And also, we we try not to make films where we have a very very strong opinion before going in. If we're not both curious about it and we don't think it's going to you know take our attention for two years or more, we won't make the film. If it you know, so we were curious about what she was doing, why she was doing it, um, what the results were. Uh, we didn't set out to like take down the Christian right. We were curious about her summer camp and her particular brand of product of Pentecostal Christian. Christianity because it was visual and it was you know unabashed and it was outrageous. So um, we liked Becky uh, and we liked the kids and, and we liked most of their parents. Um, they were really kind to us. The kids never once asked to see themselves on tape, never asked when it was going to be finished, never asked us to play anything back. There was a complete and total lack of vanity that was arresting, that was interesting to us. We hadn't met kids like that, certainly not the boys of Baraka. They're like, y'all ever going to finish this movie? Wait, I want to see that back. I mean, it was different. <laughs> and this was like, we were got more and more drawn in by the type of child this was. And so really, um, we went on a journey of discovery and the audience goes with us. And that became something as filmmakers that becomes one of our sort of rules. You know, If we're not going on a journey of discovery, if we think we know all the answers beforehand, we won't make the movie because the audience can feel it. So I think that's you know how we approach all of our movies. The film follows one boy on a trip to the New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Its pastor was Ted Haggard, a prominent evangelical minister who had frequent contact with George W. Bush's administration. Here's Haggard on the pulpit in Jesus Camp. Let's pray together. Father, in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, we pray for President Bush as he's preparing to elect a new Supreme Court nominee. Give us a pillar of strength that lasts forever. Lord, let us not waver. Let us not be talked out of it. Let us not be negotiated out of it. It's massive warfare every day. Let the battle begin. Heidi describes their unusual experience with Haggard. Obviously, we wanted to show a megachurch in our film because that really was on the rise at the time. And one of our subjects, Levi O'Brien, was interested in becoming a preacher himself and, and taking a pilgrimage with his family out to Colorado Springs. And, of course, we wanted to go with him, so we called and got access, explained what we were doing. We got to the mega church with a crew, and he behaved bizarrely on the stage, addressed our camera with a lot of hostility in front of thousands of people. We had three cameras rolling. We were abs obviously uh, didn't blend in, and he was showing off and saying, I think I know what you did last night. In the film, Haggard looks straight into the camera and says, I think I know what you did last night. <laughs> If you send me $1,000, I won't tell your wife. <laughs> if you use any of this, I'll sue you. It was very strange. We walked out, and the cinematographer said to me, is that guy on drugs? Hmm. What happened? What just happened? I said, I have no idea. And while the film was in release, it, it was found out that he was uh, seeing a male prostitute and was using crystal meth and had all kinds of 
problems and uh, sins <laughs> that he was committing. Um, and it was really from the pulpit. He was criticizing others. And there it was. And the movie was in, in theaters when it came out. And of course, John Stewart went crazy with the, him, you know, the footage of him addressing the camera. So um, that was a stroke of narrative luck, let's be honest. <laughs> Sorry, it was lucky. Um, but it was such hypocrisy. And he did it in such, I couldn't believe that this man had such audacity that he would put on such a show and be in that situation. It was really, it took us off. Uh, it was, it took me uh, by surprise. We'll be back in a minute to hear Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady discuss their new film on Norman Lear. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club. Watch hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers. New on Doc Club is a collection of films by Ken Burns. You can see his biographies of Thomas Jefferson, Mark Twain, the boxer Jack Johnson, and others. The collection also features Burns' investigation into a modern injustice, the Central Park Five. You can watch Sundance Now Doc Club on your TV, computer, or mobile device. Go to docclub.com to sign up for a free trial. In their new film, Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You, Heidi and Rachel profile the man who redefined television comedy in the 1970s with hit shows like All in the Family, Maud, Good Times, and The Jeffersons. In the 1980s, Lear founded People for the American Way, an organization meant to counter the rise of the Christian right. Their film traces his history and the ups and downs of his career. When they interviewed Norman Lear, he was already over 90, yet still sharp and full of energy. People think, uh, you know, that turning 90, you change, maybe you change, but it's everybody else who changes. Suddenly I'm extremely wise, and everybody's asking me for advice. Heidi explains how she first met Norman Lear. Um, we were making a series. A, we were part of the Makers series. It's a television documentary series about makers, women in America. We did two of the five. Um, we did one on women at war and one on women in comedy. And I was overseeing the comedy one, and Rachel was overseeing the war one. And we wanted Norman Lear because we wanted to talk about the Maud abortion episode. 1971, the show Maud had the very first uh, abortion discussion on television. It was a two-part two-parter. We wanted to include that moment in women in comedy in the show. So we started asking Norman Lear, our producer, started calling. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not doing any interviews. I'm writing my book. I'm writing my autobiography. I'm not doing media. It was really disappointing. We tried. Our producer tried many, many times. And we were almost finished with the show and tried one last time. And he was like, I'll give you 20 minutes if you come to L.A. in the next, like, three days or five days. And I'm only talking about that. So I went out there and walked into his home and sat down with him. He's like, I'm only giving you 20 minutes because you guys are persistent. Two hours later, <laughs> he'd given up the store. And he's like, oh, shit, I just gave up my whole autobiography. I was like, not really. Don't worry. It's okay. And then he took me upstairs to his study. And and, we, and it, he was just, wow, a, beyond a mensch, but also a riveting human being. And I came home and I was like, Rachel, this guy, man, there's never been a documentary film about him. And so there began our interest. We have zero interest in celebrity and very little interest in the biography genre. We appreciate watching them. It's just not what we do. Um, but this was different. We were like, this man's 90. It was 92 at the time. And it's a good story. It's a good story. He's, got a good, he's, he's had an interesting life. 
So that's how it began, and we'll skip all of the, you know, how it all went down. You know, there was other people who wanted to make the same film, whatever. There always are. And um, Boy, that sounds like an interesting part. To it me. is, but you know, can't name names um, because you've met them all. A bunch of white dudes. They didn't get to make it, though. We did because in the end, um, even though Norman had no editorial control over the film, before he would sign off his like life rights, uh, he had he wanted to be able to at least weigh in on who directed it. And he knew our work. He was a huge fan of Jesus Camp because People for the American Way, of course, its its whole raison d'etre is to um, fight the Christian right. Mm. So um, he, he was already familiar with our work. And then he, you know, we met with him at, at lunch uh, when he was sort of, it, it had agreed to at least in principle have someone make the film. And we were very, very straightforward with him. We'd read the galleys of his book. We gave him sort of our take on his story and also made it very clear that he would have no editorial control. Um, and we would not be look. He would not be looking at cuts and things like that, which is hard for him. But he's a smart guy because he understands the creative process. He's always respected it. That's why he's Norman Lear, and it was hard for him. Um, but he he was ready at that moment because he had his version out there. His autobiography was going to be out there before the movie. So we're like, that's your the full story. We're going to do our take on your story. It'll be completely reductive. It's going to be 90 minutes or 200. <laughs> so it's always reductive. Your book won't be. So I think had he not had his version out there, he wouldn't have been ready to do it. And I'm so glad he did because uh, making a movie was a blast and it's a legacy piece. And I'm, I'm, we're really glad it's part of our repertoire. repertoire. So uh, Rachel, because this was not a genre of documentary that you had really taken on fully mm -hmm. before doing a biography, what were you thinking in approaching it? Well, we knew we wanted it to be as rich as possible. So we needed it to be more, we wanted as many ingredients as we could find. And of course, there is the interview. And there is, so we interviewed him, we interviewed all his friends and his family. That Those are, you know, the, the typical biography um, go-tos. He also, we had this uh, memoir that had all these beautiful stories about when he was a kid. So we wanted to include all these stories of when he was a kid because we felt like it greatly influenced who he became as a person, as it does for everybody, but also influenced his work. His um, body of work in the 70s um, had, you know, f father figures were everywhere and he had, you know, father issues. So we also knew we wanted to include those stories, how we were going to do that, we had to figure out. We also had all his shows. We also had tons of archive of him. So we had all these ingredients. Oh, and he also was going on tour with his book. So we had some observational, an opportunity for observational uh, material as well. So we knew we had this, this all these, all these different tools, and um, it was just a matter of editing and figuring out how we were going to bring something special to this story. So we actually did these recreations of his childhood using a nine-year-old boy that was his avatar. We tried to make the point that within Norman, you know, he sees the world through the eyes of a nine-year-old, mm -hmm. which I think is true. He really has that beginner's, the beginner's mind that um, I think sort of starts wearing away once you turn 10. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so that was really how the recreations and this concept of this nine-year-old came to be. And it was just a, you know, a process of weaving all this stuff together that was that it. Now, one of the things that can be challenging about making a celebrity biography 
especially of someone that you admire, is that it it can run into hagiography. Yes, exactly. We were very very conscious of that. Uh, we didn't want to do that. I don't believe we did do that. Uh, we he is a flawed person. He wasn't a great family man. Told a few fibs. Um, he laid down the law um, sometimes, possibly too harshly. Um, with some cast conflicts. These things are in the film. Uh, we the call the movie just another version of you. So <laughs> we're, we're really, we really tried to show that he's got all of that, the contours and nuances of, of all of us, including um, ego and, you know, flaws. So it's one of those things where I think, I'm just gonna say it, when you're talking about a subject that's no longer with us, I think people talk a, m- a lot more shit about mm-hmm. someone. That's true. So, um, you know, I think that uh, that you know, you, you never know what what will it, what would have been said had we made a film about a non living subject. If, right. if that's where we're going with this, um, but I'm so glad he's with us and is an incredible example for a lot of people who are over sixty who feel invisible. Um, there's again a subtext in the film of like. Don't ever stop. Onward, next. He likes to say it. So, you know, he in the end, the film is uplifting, and he is an inspirational figure, and that's great. <laughs> but uh, we definitely talked a lot in the office about about really trying to avoid a hagiography, and I, and I think and hope that we did do that. At one point, the documentary explores tensions on a TV show developed by Norman Lear. Good Times was the first show on American television about a black family. The actor Jimmy Walker played the wisecracking son, J.J., who had the signature expression, But the actors who played the parents in the show, John Amos and Esther Roll, had frequent concerns about the scripts and would push back on Norman Lear. Here's John Amos in the documentary. Esther and I both had assumed the responsibility of being the first black family on TV. And I was worried about what people would think. I didn't want to be seen in a role that was going to disparage and denigrate a black family. I I wasn't going to do it. I wanted it to be right. So John felt an incredible amount of pressure to have this family represent what he felt was a upstanding, moral, good example family. And Norman's position was, that's not what we're doing here. We are, inter- we're, we're doing entertainment, it should be true, it should be um, genuine, but our, our job is not to be an example. And they had friction from the beginning because of that. And um, what didn't make it to the film, which maybe should have been in the film, was the fact that after a, a year and a half, so a season, season and a half, Norman got sick of John and his, you know, what he called bullshit on the set and killed his character off. So that's basically how he dealt with it. He was like, you have a great role. We are a huge hit. Uh, this is a sitcom. You're fired. And that's 
how he got rid of John. And now, you know, 30, 40 years later, whatever it is, 40 years later, John is a grown man and feels like he probably didn't handle it well mm-hmm. and um, doesn't resent Norman for doing that. He feels like he, maybe he deserved it, which was, I thought, interesting also. And also, you know, J.J., the most famous character on the show, Dynamite, you know, uh, lunchboxes, quotes, everyone loved posters, J.J. Well, they couldn't stand J.J. The cast thought it was totally Uncle Tom style and um, rude and offensive. And he was that was the most famous line on the show. It was said like every episode. And we talk in the film about um, how that caused such friction um, among the cast, that character that was so beloved by black and white people, I believe that to be true. Um, who knows, and the audience is out there, but he definitely was the most beloved character and they despised him and, and his buffoonery, which they called buffoonery. Mm-hmm. So that's something we do go into the film and I think you see in that section, Norman was like my way or the highway. But then he creates the Jeffersons next, which was which is known as like the most aspirational before Cosby show mm-hmm. about African-Americans in the country. So it's like a type of atonement that happened for good times without anyone saying so. Hmm. That was a decision he made. It came next. So anyway, I think there's a lot of – there's very interesting. He took the opportunity to um, sort of recalibrate. I think that he – that was what he took away from it. He heard them. He heard them. And I think that's what – you know, we've been asked a bunch of times in Q&As, et cetera, if Norman regrets how he acted or if, you know – he does not. He feels like, no, I, I did. I adjusted. I adjusted to the feedback. And so, uh, no, I don't feel bad about it. And now, you described Norman Lear as someone who's very controlling. Did you feel that push and pull with him? I always thought the country was too big, you know. It's like too many miles to cross, but I was really glad that he lives in L.A. and we live in New York at times. (laughs) There's how many thousands of miles? Um, He would get an idea that he'd be excited about, but, you know, and and call and be like, I just ran into this friend of mine. He was in the World War II with me and wonder if you'd be interested in, you know, talking to him about the And, uh, you know, he would come up with ideas, just suggestions. And um, we would hear the suggestions out. Um, I think it was enthusiasm. He never demanded or asked to see a cut. We volunteered to show him a, a, a fact-checking rough cut uh, at one point. He never saw the film again until Sundance, the night of opening. It had changed a lot. Um, so he was pretty hands-off. He just would come up with ideas and call us about it. Um, but I really feel that, me personally, during the edit, I wanted a, a more distance. I wanted less contact. I wanted, I didn't want to talk or to be in touch because you, you don't want someone in your head. You mm-hmm. really don't. And so um, there was definitely that period of like, we just need to go to work and do our thing and, and not hear from him. Um, and he was busy doing other things. And so uh, I guess I'm just saying that he had a lot of ideas and suggestions, but no, we never felt that he was trying to control the project. But thank was, God. He was very restrained. And I wouldn't say he's a control freak. I'd say that he is someone that produced a thousand hours of television in one decade. And th- that is a kind of person. That is a person who gets shit done and uh, has a strong point of view. So he's an overachiever. Um, but in a way, even though you'd think that he'd be the most um, concerned with this particular piece of art, media, whatever, he was also extremely vulnerable. 
And I think that made him sort of um, more disciplined in a way, or just he, he, he sort of surrendered. A, an interesting moment in the Norman Lear film, you bring up a story that he's told uh, over and over in his life, um, and, and, and it turns out to be yep. not quite accurate. To be a lie. He, he's been telling a lie as part of his repertoire for 50 years, and we stumbled across the story and um, asked him about it, and he confessed on camera that it's not true. And it was, uh, and he looked like a nine-year-old when he confessed it. He looked so chagrined. And we thought it was fascinating. Why would you tell this story that doesn't belong to you at all? It's just, people can watch the film to hear the story, but it's a story about his his family. And That's right. That, uh, that didn't happen. So how did you figure it out? Well, he just told us. Well, we figured out that it was a lie because we asked him about a story. We'd read a, we'd we'd read articles of him telling the story. It's not in his book, so we'd found it from other sources, and didn't think that he was going to answer the way he did. And we asked him, and he looked, uh, kind of terrified. And ha- he said, "Was that my book?" We're like, "No, no, no we found it somewhere else." Oh, hmm. Yeah, that was a lie. And we were so surprised that he had that reaction. But what was so interesting about the whole thing was that the pathology was so deep that this was a lie that no one would care about. <laughs> this is not this is not a story about He's not hurting uh, anyone with the lie. Th- th- this isn't a story about, you know, any something that would show how brave he was or how smart he was. It was just something he invented that he wanted it to be true about how, you know, about his childhood basically. And to be holding on to that as an adult for us was this perfect form and function of this this pattern that we saw, which is that he had this 9-year-old that was still inside of him and that wanted to be something else. And for us, it just sort of tied up, you know, what it means to be 94 and never be fully sort of grown up. As Norman Lear is set to be released this year, what are you hoping that audiences will take away from it? What I really have been enjoying is that it inspires older people. And people are obsessed with inspiring young people for obvious reasons. And it's basically, an, you know, a worldwide obsession with getting young people engaged. But it's as if people over the age of 65 don't need to be engaged or don't need to be inspired, or don't need, you know, um, to be reminded that you have a life ahead of you, you have experience to bring to the table. And I like that. And it was good to remind myself of that. It's great to see older people say, you know, yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm still alive. So, what the f? You know, you say 65. I mean, at 18 to 39. Maybe after 39, the media doesn't care about you. I mean, it's true. With everything's marketed to this demographic, it's totally sick, and um, it's something that I think we've thought a lot about by working with Norman and by watching these older audiences come up to us in tears. I can't wait to show this to my father. I can't wait to show this. I mean. It's really overwhelming. It really is. That is the demographic that um, seems to be the most um, touched by this film, and that's totally fine with us. <laughs> it's young cool. people. Yeah, we're, we're turning younger people on to him. They have never even heard of him. Yeah. Maybe they've seen one of his shows once, 
you know, but they have no idea what his legacy means to the shows that they watch now, which, of course, there is, you know, there is a direct lineage, but which is nice. Again, it's nice to inspire young people, but it's a whole other thing to be reminded that inspiring people of all ages is actually extremely worthwhile. I want to thank Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady for joining me. Their new film, Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You, is playing in theaters this summer. You can find their film, Detropia, on SundanceNow.club. On our next episode, I interview Bill Siegel, the director of The Trials of Muhammad Ali. I'll ask about his perspective on Ali's life and what are his other favorite films about the boxing icon who died last month. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews help us climb the charts on iTunes, and that's how new listeners find us. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.